If the only thing you hear tonight is the Bible being read, then we've had a very good evening together. And, and that's true. And, and, and I hope you can get some really, really good stuff out of what is a very, very beautiful part of Matthew. We're going to need God's help. So let me pray for us as we start. Heavenly Father God, we thank you and praise you so much for your goodness to us in the gospel. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, who you sent so that we could live again. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for his death and for his resurrection. Thank you for his life and his ministry. Thank you for what we read of here. Thank you that we read the story of someone that we can implicitly trust. Heavenly Father, be with us tonight, we pray. May we go from here excited and more in love with you and changed and challenged so that we can tell people about Jesus. And we pray these things in your mighty name. Amen. <coughs> I wonder who it is that you trust most in the world. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a close friend. Maybe it's a relative. Maybe it's a thing. Maybe it's your career or your income or your health. But ultimately, we all know, don't we, that the thing that we trust most is the thing that we would be utterly devastated to lose. What is it that if you lost it tomorrow, would bring down your entire world? What is it that you trust? And as a society, we place an incredibly high premium on trust, don't we? We can't get through a single day without trusting the people around us, or even the transport we use, or the food we eat, or, dare I say it, the governments that we are under. But if we're honest, there is no trust like the trust that we place in the people that we love most. Our spouses, our friends, our family... And this high premium we place on trust is never more apparent than when it is revealed in all its terrible glory when that trust in those situations, in those relationships, is fundamentally broken. And regaining that trust is in most cases very, very hard. And in some cases it is impossible. We all place an astonishingly high premium on trust. And it makes sense then that we are often heartbroken when that trust fails. The breaking of trust is a devastating reality. As a friend of mine said to me just over the past few weeks, on the back of the most heart-rending breaking of trust you could possibly imagine, she said, I don't know if I could ever trust anyone ever again. I wonder if anyone feels like this tonight. You have been so betrayed. You don't feel like you can trust anyone ever again. Well, this is why we are here in Matthew 3 and 4. Because here, very vividly, we see someone in the person of Jesus Christ, the one whom John the Baptist was pointing to, remember? The one who was spoken of throughout the ages by the prophets and the whole of the law, We see in this King Jesus, someone who I can really trust with my very life. 
And that's what we're going to look at together. Let's read the passage together, shall we? Matthew 3.13 to 4.11. And Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Thanks so much, Andy. That's wonderful. Now, before we get into that passage, remember where we've come from in Matthew. We've had Jesus' birth, the visit of the wise men, the fleeing of the family to and from Egypt because of Herod's desire to to kill this new king. Then last week, we saw this greatest prophet, the greatest prophet in history, John the Baptist, the one who comes, if you like, in the flesh and the manner of Elijah, the prophet who Malachi taught us would point us to Jesus, the Messiah King. And John's message, if you remember, is a message that really only concerns one thing, and that is repentance. Repent, he says. Turn around from where you are heading in your sin that cuts you off from God and only makes you an object of God's wrath. Turn and follow the King. Turn around from your religion and your good works, he says to the Pharisees. Works that cut you off from a good God and makes you an object of his wrath. Turn and follow the king. Well, repentance remains our watchword tonight. As we look on the baptism and the temptation of Jesus and the person who now takes center stage fully in the gospel from here on in, the person around whom this whole act of repentance seems to be centered is the one whom John was pointing to, Jesus Christ. And to start us off, as you'll see in your service sheets, please feel free to follow that as you go through. Whereas last week, we saw John's proclamation of the king who saves. Here we see the father's declaration of the king who saves. 3, 13 to 17. 
And as we've noticed over the past few weeks in Matthew, when we really begin to tap down into what he says, we see that it is steeped in Old Testament imagery, packed to the rafters with Old Testament parallel. And for Matthew, this is important. To a certain extent, this is because he's writing with the Jews in mind. He wants them to know that Jesus is the one whom they were expecting from their own scriptures. He's using language that will resonate with their remembrance of the Old Testament. And in God's declaration of who Jesus is that we read of here, God's assent, if you like, that this man Jesus is his king, we see Old Testament very much in action. Because God the Father is not just ratifying what John the Baptist has been saying. He's not just giving authority to John's testimony, but God the Father is also doing something else. He is attributing two very important elements to Jesus' kingship. And these two elements run like two threads throughout the theme of God's king all the way through the whole of the Bible. And the first attribute is that Jesus, this king, is God's servant. And we read that in verse 16. Read that with me. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Now, the Father isn't being cryptic here. He's being overtly obvious. The Spirit of God descending on Jesus is the same imagery that is used in Isaiah 42, verse 1. A prophecy about the Lord's chosen servant. And it says this, Behold my servant who I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and this servant will bring forth justice to the nations. Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. He is God's chosen servant king, as promised of in history. Again, as we said last week, anyone who would have known their Old Testaments, and the Pharisees really should have, they should have recognized this vivid imagery of the Spirit of God descending on Jesus as a mark of servanthood. As someone who is going to be sent out to work. Someone who will do the Father's will. Jesus, therefore, is God's King who is going to serve. Jesus is not a king who is going to lord it over people. He is not a king who will demand or stand on his rights or his glory. He is a king who will serve. He is the servant king. But more than that, Jesus is God's king as God's son. 3.17 This is my beloved son, says God, with whom I am well pleased. This resonates of Psalm 2 verse 7, that great messianic psalm talking of the beloved king of God, semi-personified in King David, but fully personified in Jesus Christ. We read this, the Lord said to me, the king, you are my son and today I have begotten you. King Jesus is the servant of God. King Jesus is the son of God. And all this is significantly important for what comes up next. Because what does God's servant and God's son actually look like? And that brings us neatly into our second point. 
Jesus' demonstration that he really is the king who saves. Now, before we get into this passage, it's probably worth doing a very quick sidestep here. Because I don't know how many of you are new to church tonight, or if this is the first time you've ever listened to the Bible being read, but I grant you that this passage is actually probably quite weird. Apart from the fact that we've had a faceless voice booming down from heaven over Jesus, and apart from the fact that we've had a dove from the heavens descending on him, all ardent guests in their own way, we now have a showdown between Jesus and the devil. Now, I entreat you not to switch off. This might seem mad, but in fact it is entirely reasonable. Consider what John the Baptist has been saying. That the king of the universe, God himself, has broken into our human experience to usher in a new kingdom. And consider what Matthew, the writer of this gospel, claims about Jesus. That he is the fulfillment of the whole of the Old Testament. That means all the empires of the ages that are mentioned in the Bible. All the politics that has been recorded. All the history that has built up over the course of 2,000 years. Everything has been getting ready for this one man. Consider, too, that Jesus is claimed to be the one who saves us from sin and panic and distress and pain. And he is going to usher in goodness and salvation and light. Is it not entirely reasonable to think that there is a character who would choose to frustrate the good plans of a good God? A character who epitomizes all the things that we hate and struggle with. This is the devil. The supernatural opposite to a good God. The epitome of the one who rebels against a good God. And here we see the devil, Satan, desperate to frustrate and destroy the plans and the work of King Jesus. The devil is, as the Bible says, the ruler of this age. It is an obvious thing to say that he does not want Jesus' heavenly kingdom breaking into his own territory, stealing his own people. And so Satan wants to stop Jesus. But isn't it interesting how he chooses to do it? He doesn't maim him. He doesn't take loved ones away from him and holds them ransom. He tempts him. In other words, he wants Jesus to sin. And what happens here in this dialogue in the wilderness after these 40 days is absolutely necessary for us to see how this King Jesus really works. Because on the back of John's proclamation that Jesus is the King who saves, and on the back of the Father's declaration that Jesus is the King who saves, our next question is, how do we know? How do we really know Jesus is the King who saves? How do we really know that Jesus is the kind of king that everyone is shouting about? How do we really know? As Paul Clark says, I want a test drive. I want proof. I want a demonstration that Jesus is going to do what everyone else says that he is going to do. I want to see this Jesus at work. I want to know. In short... Can I trust him? Giving up everything to follow him, as the word repentance means. 
Me turning around full tilt from where I am at the moment and placing my entire life on him. Me relying on him to remove my sin from me so that I can stand before a holy God. That is a big ask. Can I really trust you, Jesus? What if you fail? And this question is all the more important when I consider what the other sons of God in the Bible have been like. Because as we know, Jesus is not the first person to be called a son of God. How is this son of God any different? Because when we scan back into the depths of the Old Testament, we see there are three significant people in the Bible who are all given the title son of God. Adam, the first man of creation, the literal first son of God, the image bearer of the creator himself. King David, Psalm 2, I will call you my son, God says, the man after God's own heart. And the nation of Israel, Hosea 11, out of Egypt I called my son Israel, the people that belonged to God and bore his very name. People of incredible worth and promise and hype and excitement, each of them. But what do they all have in common? They failed. And how did they fail? They fell into temptation and they sinned. Will Jesus be the same? Will this son of God be any different? Well, this is why the same spirit who descended on Jesus, signifying his servanthood, leads, not drives or coerces, but leads Jesus, who follows obediently as a servant would, into the wilderness to be tested, to show us how this son is different. Because we see him being tempted here in three ways. Each time we see that Jesus does not fail. Firstly, we see Jesus resists the temptation to serve himself. Four, one to four. Just read that with me. And after 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. You can only imagine. And the tempter that is the devil came and said to him, If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now this may seem like a frivolous temptation, but it is a difficult one to resist. Jesus at his lowest ebb, genuinely starving from having fasted at his weakest. Come on, Jesus. You're God's son. Your father isn't going to begrudge you a little bit of food, surely to goodness. We're reminded of Israel here. Indeed, Israel, God's son, was fed in the wilderness miraculously by God. But depending on God is not what Israel did. They were fed, but they relied more on God's provision than God himself. And they fell into temptation through grumbling to God. And they sinned. Jesus does not. Jesus is the faithful son. He is also the faithful servant. The Isaiah 42 passage that we read earlier detailing the servant king, that will go on to say in a few chapters' time that this servant will have to suffer and to die. 
Can you imagine that at the first time of being tempted, Jesus, God's son, the servant king, instead of serving others, chose to serve himself? As one commentator says, if Jesus had a dodgy track record in self-service leading up to the cross, how could anyone guarantee that he remained on it? No, says Jesus, I will not be like Israel. I will not rely on bread. I will rely on God. Secondly, we read that Jesus resists the temptation to test God, 4, 5 to 7. Read that again with me. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What is the devil doing here? Well, he's dangerously misusing Psalm 91. That's what he's doing. This psalm that he quotes does promise to protect God's people when they get into danger. But the devil twists God's words to make Jesus try to manufacture an event whereby God is forced to act to save him. No, says Jesus. Deuteronomy 6.16 says Jesus. That's the passage he quotes. The law expressly forbids me putting God to the test in that way. Again, we're reminded of Israel. This is what Israel, God's son, fell into the trap of doing. Just merely days out of coming out of Egypt, what is the first thing they did? They grumbled. And Exodus tells us they tested God. That's the language it uses. Is the Lord among us or not, they say. Does he love us or will he abandon us, they ask. And they fell into sin. Jesus does not. He is the faithful son. He is the faithful servant. Can you imagine if Jesus had failed here? Testing God, or indeed grumbling like Israel did at the lack of food. What would Jesus have been like in facing not hunger, but death? Even to death on a cross. No, says Jesus, I will not be like Israel. I will not test God, I will trust God. Finally, we see that Jesus resists the temptation to receive glory and worship the devil, 4, 8 to 11. Now, I think this one is is kept till last because this is the most cruel. And this temptation is actually the one temptation that is going to haunt and cling to Jesus for the rest of his life and ministry, right up until the hour of his death. Read from verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And the devil said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now this is quite a temptation to imagine, and we should imagine it. Standing there on the pinnacle of the temple, the highest point in Israel, 
All the great kingdoms of the earth, all the ones we've ever read about in our history books, all the ones that we see presently established on the earth, all the ones that will crop up in the future, all of them spread out at Jesus' feet. All this can be yours, says Satan. All their beauties, all their riches, all their wealth. If only you do this tiny thing and bow down to me. Now this is insidious, this last temptation. Because the kingdoms of the earth are in fact something that Jesus has already been offered by his father back in Psalm 2. We read that God tells his son and king this, Ask of me, says God to the king, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. That is what God is saying to Jesus. Jesus is going to receive what Satan offers here. But what's the twist? Satan offers it all without the cost. You see, receiving the kingdoms the Father's way comes at a colossal price. The great cost that Jesus is going to have to pay in order to be glorified. That great cost that he is going to have to endure for the sake of reuniting the nations under himself. That great cost of bearing the entire weight of sinful man. The great cost of the cross. Indeed, the servant of God has to suffer and die. <clears throat> the devil says here, and that's just not true, Jesus. If you bow to me, you can get all of what you're promised. But without of having to go to the cross. You see? Oh, the temptation. Oh, the temptation, not having to go through the humiliation and the filth and the ignominy and the pain and the distress and the incredible inconvenience of the cross. It is so tempting. And Jesus faces this temptation all the way through his ministry. When he tells his disciples for the first time that he must suffer and die, Peter calls him over and says, surely not. That will never happen. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Because Peter's temptation is this temptation. You don't need to go to the cross. At the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus stoops in anguish and sweats drops of blood, and at his most human moment says, if there could be any other way, that this cup could be removed from me. But not my will, but yours be done. Jesus' temptation is this temptation. Can I escape the cross? And when Jesus is literally hanging on the cross, moments from death, the crowd shout out, if you take yourself from off the cross now, then we will trust in you. Their temptation is this temptation. You don't need to go to the cross. You can end all of this Now, praise the Lord God Almighty that Jesus did not fail. Praise the Lord God Almighty that he remained the faithful son. That he remained the faithful servant. 
Praise the Lord that in this wilderness of 40 days, he did not repeat the failings of God's son Israel in the wilderness of 40 years. Praise the Lord that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane did not fail like God's son Adam in the Garden of Eden. Praise the Lord that Jesus at the height of the cross did not fail like God's son King David did at the height of his reign. Praise the Lord that this son of God is different. That this son of God is resolutely faithful. That this son of God is a servant king. Praise the Lord that this son of God can be trusted. There's one very obvious question that we've not asked and you'll have spotted it. And it's this. Why does Jesus get baptised? We've not even looked at that yet. Well, Jesus says that it is to fulfill all righteousness. You see, God has a plan, a plan of righteousness towards the sinner. And this can only be fulfilled or implemented if Jesus is baptized. Indeed, God's plan can only be fulfilled if Jesus goes through what the sinner has to go through. If Jesus identifies with the sinner himself. By his being baptized, he's identifying fully with those who are sinful, but without him being a sinner. And is that not exactly what Jesus does here in the wilderness? He identifies with us in our sufferings and our temptation, but he doesn't sin. And is that not exactly what Jesus will do in three years' time of this event on the cross? He was judged as I am judged, and yet, unlike me, he died. In his very first act in his ministry, by being baptized, Jesus sets in place a paradigm, a pattern for how this kingdom will work, for what repentance will really look like. He is going to be the sinless servant king who will fully identify with those who are wretched and sinful. And this pattern continues. In his temptation, he stands up where every son and daughter of God has ever failed. And he fully identifies with our temptation. He fully identifies with our pain and our trauma. But he does not fail. And in his hanging on the cross, the identification with the sinner is made fully complete. As he hangs literally clothed in my sin, in my faithlessness, in my testing of God, in my desire for self-service, he is now the object of God's wrath. You see, it had to be that he who had no sin took his place amongst those who had no righteousness. And what does all this mean? What does repentance to this king and confession of sin to this king mean? What does trusting this son of God mean? Well, it means I can approach God's throne with confidence. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. 
but one who in every respect has been tempted just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That is God's righteous plan for mankind. That is how repentance is won. And that is how I know I can trust Jesus. And so the question I asked right at the beginning still stands. Who am I really trusting in? What am I really trusting in? For those of us who are Christians, is the answer Jesus? Truthfully, honestly, is the answer Jesus? What one thing, if it were taken away from you right now, would empty your world? Is it money? Is that what you're trusting in? Is it a friendship? Is it a relationship? Is it a gift? A house? Security? What is it? What is it that if you lost it, it would destroy you? What are you clinging to? Fully believing that it is not only going to sustain you in this life, but will also help you in the next. That's the thing that you are trusting in for your hope for your life, for your eternity. It's not Jesus. And if it's not, then we need to repent. The watchword of these passages is repentance. But as we've already seen, repentance is a daily state. It is a daily giving over of my sin to Jesus who proves he can take it. It is a daily giving over of my pride, of my suffering, of my failure. As Christians, this passage encourages us to repent. It's not necessarily a salvation issue with us, but it is a necessary part of what it means to follow Jesus and to be in relationship with him. Are we trusting in Jesus? Are we as Christians like the Pharisees in last week's passage, living for Jesus on the outside and trusting in my career, stroke money, stroke relationships, etc. on the inside? We need to place our trust back in him again. We need to repent of our self-reliance. We need to repent of the sin that we are not keeping in check. We need to repent of our reliance on other things and situations and people. And do so every day. Knowing that all these things that we have and enjoy, as wonderful as family jobs and relationship are, they will never do for us what we wish of them. They will fail. But to those of us here tonight who feel like we could never trust anyone else ever again, to those of us who feel burned and bruised, to those of us who really have felt the immense weight of failure, to those of us who have failed in times of temptation, who ourselves have broken trust, who ourselves have battled with sin and been entirely defeated and are really tired of the fight, Jesus didn't. Come to the one that you can truly trust. He will not let you down. He will not fail like we did. He will take you back. He did all this for you so that you didn't have to. 
He stood where we failed. He won where we lost. He died where we were allowed to live. And if that is you, if you feel like you couldn't trust anyone else ever again, repent. And put your trust, your future, your hope, your life in Jesus Christ. Do it tonight. How fitting it is that we can approach the table of the Lord's Supper. We can only celebrate this because Jesus did not fail. Remember me, Jesus says, as he stands in an upper room and breaks the tradition of hundreds of years of Passover and breaks bread and drinks wine and talks of his body and his blood before a stunned group of disciples, foreshadowing that his death and the blood that he will spill will work. Remember me. I've done it. And that's what we do tonight. We remember Jesus. And we repent as we do to the one who went to the cross and fulfilled the actions of the Last Supper by dying for us and spilling his blood for us so that we could truly put our trust in him. Let's pray together as we close.